Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So... Sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have a special Christmas episode, because I promised. I know. So with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is always only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so pick your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say holiday, that's going to be a single shot, and every time I say Jesus, that will be a double shot. Yeah, you know I'm just going to randomly scream Jesus tonight, so pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, don that bulky Santa suit, your very best ugly sweater, and maybe some jingle bells <laughs> as we do the real story of Christmas and the history behind some of the dark traditions that we love so much. History doesn't actually record when the first Christmas was celebrated, contrary to the Christian belief. But it was probably sometime in the 4th century CE, that's current era, in the Roman Empire. What's sure is that the first historic record of the holiday is a calendar dating from 354, current era, belonging to a very wealthy Roman Christian by the name of Philocolus. That calendar tells us that on the same date, 
December 25th, there was another holiday that was celebrated that was marking the birth of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, if you will. That was a new pagan cult worshipping a new sun deity. Both these holidays coincided with the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which had been celebrated from December 17th to December 24th. That was a festival celebrating the god Saturn, which, as we will soon see, contributed heavily to the Latter-day Christmas traditions. That's right, guys, I'm sorry to say it, but Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory is correct. It's Saturnalia, not the birth of Jesus! Sorry, I'm going to say it like that because I can't help myself. I'm a little drunk today. So then, why December the 25th? Now, scholars differ on why December 25th was chosen as the birth of Jesus. Because, guess what? It really wasn't. Sorry, you can send your hateful emails now. So yes, this is a warning to all the Bible thumpers out there. I'm about to piss you off with facts, which will challenge your faith. And if your faith is so flimsy, well then let it be challenged. Bring it on. Hippolytus in the second century was probably the first to propose this date of the 25th. The New Testament doesn't tell us when the birth pla- took place. The only clue that the texts give us is, and I quote, some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And that's Luke 2.8. It actually implies that the birth of Jesus took place in the spring or possibly even the summer, as sheep would have been kept indoors during the cold winter nights. So, sorry guys, not the birth of Jesus. Get over yourself. That date was probably chosen based on the birth date of Sol Invictus, which marked the, the winter solstice, when the sun overcomes darkness and the days begin to get longer. And as you know, early Christian symbolism would often liken Jesus with the sun. As Christianity developed, becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, many pagan traditions were assimilated. This is blatantly clear in the case of Christmas, which took on many of the traditions of Saturnalia, most notably the tradition of gift-giving and merrymaking. When the Germanic tribes adopted Christianity, and by extension the holiday of Christmas, they contributed to the traditions of the holiday by incorporating aspects of the pagan winter festival Yule into the Christian holiday. Most notably of these are the veneration of evergreens, which would, with time, morph into the Christmas tree, the traditions of holly and mistletoe decoration, and a wild hunt of flying creatures led by the long-bearded god Odin, who is believed to have been the prototype for one known as, you guessed it, Santa Claus. Another aspect that Christmas adopted from the Germanic Yule is, well, heavy drinking. Thank you, Germany and Germanic tribes, for the heavy drinking. We appreciate it. Though this is not associated with Christmas anymore, during the Middle Ages, drinking was a major part of the holiday. And anybody who's visiting family is going to say, (laughs) it still is. (laughs) They obviously haven't spent Christmas with me because it's always heavy drinking. 
Anyway, in general, Christmas during the Middle Ages would have been very foreign to a modern-day observer because it was mostly a festival of drinking and revelry, much closer to Saturnalia than our modern Christmas is. It was during the Middle Ages when the veneration of St. Nicholas, a 3rd to 4th century Greek bishop living in what is today Turkey, developed into the holiday figure of Sinterklaas in the Netherlands. St. Nicholas was said to have given gifts to children and thus was considered the patron saint of school children. According to tradition, Sinterklaas would come from Spain on a steamboat accompanied by a mischievous Moorish helper called Zwarte Pet. This helper would kidnap bad children and report to Sinterklaas on good children, who would then receive gifts on December the 6th, which was Sinterklaas's feast day. Later, during the Reformation, many Netherlanders stopped celebrating the saint's feast day and the gift-giving associated with Sinterklaas migrated from December the 6th to, you guessed it, Christmas. In the English-speaking world, the Protestant Reformation was even more radical, abolishing not only saint feasts, but going as far as banning Christmas itself. How dare they! In the wake of the English Civil War, Christmas was abolished in 1647, though many outright acts of protest followed, with people defying the Puritans and continuing to celebrate the holiday, albeit in a much less public fashion. Even after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, celebration of Christmas wasn't completely restored to its former glory. At roughly the same time, the tradition of setting up a tree in one's home and lighting candles began to spread in Germany. The concept spread among European nobility during the 18th and 19th centuries, reaching the lower classes only in the late 19th century. The huge success of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol in 1843 greatly contributed to popularizing Christmas and gave it much of the qualities that we associate with it today. A holiday centered on the family as opposed as a community holiday celebrated in church. The book also contributed to the popularity of the phrase Merry Christmas, which appears many times throughout. That very same year, the first commercially printed Christmas cards were printed and sold bearing that same wish, Merry Christmas. Meanwhile, in 1823, A Visit from St. Nicholas, well, that's a poem better known to us as Twas the Night Before Christmas, by Clement Clark Moore, was published in the United States. This contributed to the spread of Santa Claus, at this point merging the serious Dutch Sinterklaas with the jolly English personification of Christmas known as Father Christmas and gift-giving in the English-speaking world. This emphasis on gifts led merchants and manufacturers to decorate their stores and ads with Christmas themes, hoping it would be their products that would be bought and gifted. By the mid-19th century, people began to complain that the holiday was losing its true meaning in face of commercialism. In 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant signed a law that officially made Christmas a secular federal holiday. This coincided with a mass influx of Eastern European Jewish immigrants into America. Finding shops closed on this day and not celebrating Christmas themselves, they found themselves going to 
Chinese restaurants that stayed open because their owners didn't celebrate Christmas either. Moreover, the Chinese restaurants were located nearby as Jewish, Chinese, and other poor immigrants tended to live in the same slums. This is the origin of the Jewish American tradition of having Chinese food from Chinese restaurants on Christmas. Is that why I like my beef and broccoli so much? Hmm. Anyways. Many of the most popular Christmas carols were written and composed in the 19th century. Silent Night, originally in German in 1818. Oh, Holy Night, originally in French in 1847. Joy to the World, originally in English in 1839. Jingle Bells, also originally in English in 1857. And Deck the Halls, originally in Welsh in 1877, just to name a few. These began to be superseded after the advent of the radio and the phonograph by popular Christmas songs, especially during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Many of these were written by Jews, among them Sleigh Ride, written by Mitchell Parrish, originally Michael Hyman Peschlinski in 1948, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, was written and composed by Sammy Kahn and Jules Stein in 1945. Irving wrote White Christmas, and Johnny Marks wrote both Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Christmas broadcasts began in earnest during the second half of the 20th century, most notably Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life from 1946 and A Charlie Brown Christmas, which first aired in 1965. But of course, there is the majority of believers out there that will scream at the top of their lungs that the reason for the season is celebrating the birth of Jesus. Oh, peace, goodwill, and tidings of comfort and joy. Don't you believe it for a freaking minute. Little Baby Jesus, Three Wise Men, and Follow That Star. That's the Christian meaning of Christmas. Or maybe it's festive jumpers panic-driven spending sprees, drinking way too much, and having an almighty row before the Queen's speech. Or perhaps Christmas is none of these things. After all, the celebration does have its roots in distant pre-Christian times, and many of the traditions that we hold so dear today have darker and far more sinister origins. People have been marking the midwinter for far longer than the 2,000-odd years since the birth of Christ, and even that's in doubt anyway. It was only in the year 340 AD that Pope Julius I fixed the date of Jesus' birthday at December the 25th. Prior to that, it was marked on at least three different other dates, March the 29th, January the 6th, and sometime in June which historians today think is most likely, given that the nativity is meant to have occurred during a census-taking. It was 250 years later that Julius' successor, a few times removed, Pope Gregory, gave the job to St. Augustine of converting the heathen Brits to Christianity. Oh, what I wouldn't do for a heathenistic Brit of my very, very own. Santa, put that on my wish list, please. 
Fortunately, with the birth of Christ, now established as December the 25th, it gave Augustine a bit of leverage with the population who were already marking several midwinter festivals, ensuring they could take this new-fangled religion on board without losing the annual December debauchery. Because, well, the idea of getting blind drunk at Christmas, well, isn't actually a new idea. Thus proving old ideas are actually the best ones. <laughs> there were two major pre-Christian festivals of note which roughly coincided with Christmas. The Roman Bacchanalia, or Saturnalia as it became known, and the Yule Feast of the Norse countries. Saturnalia began on December the 19th and lasted for the best part of a week, which sounds about right for those currently enmeshed in the Christmas party rush. Morality and restraint were politely shown the back door. Schools were closed, and no criminals were punished during this time. Slaves were even allowed to swap places with their masters, and one was even elected king for the duration of the festival. And the wealthy distributed gifts to the poor. The Roman god Saturn, in whose honor the festival was staged, was no benign Christ figure or benevolent Santa even though his party was eventually absorbed into Christmas. Ancient astrologers thought being born under the sign of Saturn was bad news. As the god of the harvest, he wielded a vicious scythe and devoured his own children. Well, they do say we eat a lot more at Christmas, I guess. And Christmas roughly coincided with the pre-Christian festival of the Roman Bacchanalia, or Saturnalia. Of course, not many of us celebrate the Saturnalia still today, but vestiges of these old traditions and festivals still remain, and you'll probably have some dotted around your very own house right now. For example, take the mistletoe, a parasitical plant that grows on other trees, but which was once thought to have been a fully formed tree in its own right, and which provided the wood from which Christ's cross was made. Going back further, Norse mythology tells us of the god Baldr, who was killed by an arrow made of, you guessed it, mistletoe. But we mostly associate the plant with the ancient drunks, I mean, whoops, druids of jolly old England. Yeah, that was a slip of the tongue, right? Who, legend says, valued it so much they would cut it from the oak trees that it grew with, a golden sickle, and catch it in a cloak or robe before it would hit the ground. For if it did, it would lose its special powers that the druids were rumored to use in medicine and rituals. And it used to be said that mistletoe was bound in churches because of its pagan associations. Though York Minister, which itself has ancient links to the Vikings, used to hold a special mistletoe service where the city's wrongdoers could beg the pardon of the church. From mistletoe to the holly and the ivy, two Christmas staples, but you best be careful with them, for they reek of danger, and I'm not just talking about pricking your finger. According to old customs, holly should never be brought into your house before Christmas Eve, or bad luck will result. And you all know that your Christmas decorations should be taken down by Twelfth Night or the 6th of January, one of Christ's earliest birthdays, remember. But old English tradition says you shouldn't just throw Christmas greenery out the door or a death will occur in the house before the following Yuletide. 
The customs were written before the advent of the recycling bin, of course, so you might be able to circumvent them, at least in that way. But perhaps a safer bet is to store Holly and Ivy in the house until next year. Apparently, this is a surefire way of preventing a lightning strike on your home. Those silly middle-agers. <laughs> perhaps you could save a sprig of Holly to stick on top of the Christmas pudding. Like what you see on Christmas cards, but, you know, never actually have seen in real life. But while you're doing that, remember that the making of the Christmas pudding itself is steeped in folklore as well. It was once thought to be lucky to partake in the act of making the pudding, especially if that pudding was stirred east to west. Why? I'm glad you asked. Latterly, because the three wise men traveled in that direction to pay homage to the Christ child. But in days before that, because that was the trajectory of the sun god, a deity whose birthday was celebrated on, you guessed it, December the 25th. So far, you've done everything right to ensure a trouble-free Christmas. Just Christmas Eve and the big day to get through, and you're home and dry. Might be worth firing up a Yule log, burned according to the ancient traditions of tree worship. Though, as ever, take care. Should the blazing log cast shadows which appear to be headless, then you can guarantee you'll see a death over the coming year. And Christmas Eve is traditionally a time for restless spirits to walk the earth, something good old Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol knows far too well. Should you be brave enough, legend has it, that if you venture into a graveyard on Christmas Eve and dig a hole, then you'll find gold. But be careful getting there. On that night, cattle are said to kneel down and speak in human voices. And those leaving church on Christmas Eve, while the consecration is still going on, are guaranteed to witness a procession of ghosts wending their way through the streets. Speaking of supernatural beings abroad on Christmas Eve, what about the big man himself? Father Christmas, Santa, good old Saint Nick. Why do we hang a stocking out for him? Because according to legend, Saint Nicholas heard about three sisters who were forced into a life of prostitution to earn enough money to eat. So he tossed three coins down their chimney to help them out which landed in the girl's stockings, drying on the hearth. Hmm, is that the reason Santa says ho, ho, ho? Okay, that one blew my mind. Because Father Christmas, as a jolly old man with a white beard, was indeed thought to be based on St. Nicholas, who can be traced back to Asia Minor in about 350 AD, around the time that good old Pope Julius was fixing that date of Jesus' birth, don't you know? And somewhere along the way, he got mashed up with other folklore characters, including Kris Kringle from 19th century German tradition. The magazine Harper's Weekly published what's thought to be the first illustration depicting modern Santa in the 1860s. Though he originally wore green robes and had associations with the green man of legend who ruled the woods and forests in pagan belief seen in his more familiar red once or twice long before then. Then, of course, there is a dark side to Father Christmas, and that would be Krampus, who's variously Santa's little evil helper or his ancient enemy, depending on which story you hear. Whereas Santa rewards good children, 
Camp Krampus plays the bad cop to the big red guy's good cop and punishes bad kids, especially in areas of Eastern Europe. Still, we've always got the Christmas tree, right? There's absolutely nothing sinister about that. After all, we didn't really have them over here until Queen Victoria and Prince Albert popularized them in 1840. But perhaps we can bring the ancient mythology story of the goddess Sibyl and the mortal Attis into this. Sibyl desired Attis, as the gods often did, regardless of a mortal's wish. But Attis had set his cap at the daughter of a local king. Rather displeased, Sibyl sent Attis mad, and he ran in a crazy rage through the mountains, eventually, and for reasons best known to himself, castrating himself at the foot of a pine tree. Yikes, right? And in recent years, Christmas has become a battleground for the opponents of the separation of church and state, who oppose the public endorsement of the Christian holiday by government and public companies and conservative Christians who believe a war on Christmas is being waged. The liberals claiming the worship of Jesus shouldn't be forced on them, and the conservatives claiming that their right to worship freely is being infringed upon. But if the Protestant Reformation, with all its power, couldn't manage to stamp out the holiday spirit, grousing in the op-ed section of the press isn't likely to do it either. And with that, my darlings, I want to wish all my little heathens out there a very happy Saturnalia, a raucous Yule, a happy Hanukkah, festive Kwanzaa, Merry Christmas, and lastly, a happy holiday season. May you get the gift you most deserve and need this year. And my gift to you all, love and light. May the new year bring us all love and light, understanding and joy. Good night, my darlings. Don't stay up too late or Santa won't come and eat all the cookies. And with that, my darlings, we've come to the end of today's episode. I thank you for joining me here today. I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about today's episode. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, you want to tell me Merry Christmas, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, darlings, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. Merry Christmas. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.